This is Terry Crosby. Andy Steiger. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you understand and speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Today, we're going to jump right into our topic of discussion. As we were just going. <laughs> Terry and I are, are sitting side by side. This is unusual for us. Yes. Good to be sitting beside you, Terry. I'd rather look right into your eyes, Andy. That disturbs me. <laughs> Moving on. All right. Well, we have a guest in studio, and I will introduce to her uh, in just a second. There's been a few prominent pastors in the California area that have taken their life. Mm-hmm. And we want to discuss some mental health, mental illness perspective on this show itself. Yeah, this is something that we see getting a lot of airtime, and rightly so. And we just have felt really passionate to talk about this, so much so that we even discussed it at the Apologetics Canada Conference this last year. Uh, and we want to continue to discuss it. That's right. So both pastors were prior to them taking their own lives, talked about dealing with anxiety and depression. So just over a week ago, Pastor Jared Wilson of Harvard Christian Fellowship took his own life just a day before the World Health or Mental Health Day. So this is very tragic, Mm -hmm. both for the church and I think definitely for his family as well, right? But in studio today to help us through this topic of mental health and mental illness is Dr. Estera Boldut. She is the clinical director and instructor of Master of Arts in uh, Marriage and Family Therapy at Axe Seminaries. Uh, before coming to Axe Seminaries, Estera coordinated orphanages in Romania. She continues to work with families who have children with disabilities, adults with fetal alcohol syndrome, acquired brain injury, and families who adopt children with, from difficult places. She has a Bachelor of Theology from the University of Bucharest, a Bachelor of Social Work from the University of Bucharest, a Master of Arts in Marriage and Family Therapy from Axe Seminaries, and a Doctor of Psychology from the California Southern University. Some of you that listened to this podcast, and if you attended our conference last year, she was a speaker there, and uh, well received. Yeah, Yeah. addressed this issue. So welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you today with us. Thank you for the invitation. It's awesome to be here. You have an interesting background, mm-hmm. uh, family background. Can you just give us a little uh, indication of that and where you came from? Hmm. I originally come from Romania. I was born and I lived during communism there. I worked with orphans for most of my life. I did my bachelor in social work, so I coordinated a few orphanages. I used to take babies, like five-days-old babies, abandoned in the maternity hospital, bring them in an orphanage, and I worked in adoption, so national and international adoptions, trying to find families for all these children. And um, I loved that job. And then I had a child, (laughs) and I felt that my first responsibility was towards my my family, and we thought about coming to Canada. I thought one day she would like to study, and it would be so hard for her to, well, learn a new language and adapt to a new culture. So I had to give back, give my dream back to God, and trust God step by step that he'll give me another dream back. Uh, My own background in, in Romania, some gypsy blood and some um, <laughs> Jewish blood. A lot of my family on my mother's side 
they died in a concentration camp. And uh, my father was a pastor during communism. Anyway, those are very interesting stories. Yeah, yeah, Many for sure. That'd be interesting that. to hear. Yeah. 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 Is, yeah. Is your husband from Romania as well? Yes. When did you come to Canada then? In 2005. 2005. Yeah, so okay. I was 30. So I had a whole life. Yeah, yeah, before that. <laughs> in, in Romania. For sure. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. You know, it's interesting for me as well. I came, I'm originally from Portland, Oregon. Yeah. Uh, and I came out to Canada when I was uh, 19, around yeah. 19. So it's been weird for me because I'm like, man, I, I had like a whole nother life there. <laughs> <laughs> and actually now it's kind of weird because I've lived here longer than I've lived in the U.S. What about yourself? How, how long have you been living in Canada? Well, almost 15 years uh, now. And as soon as I came to Canada, I knew that I have enough studies to do more studies. So um, I went to Trinity maybe in the first two weeks um, after I immigrated. And that was kind of the desire of my heart that I would like to do more studies and serve God the best I can. And um, then I went and I worked. <laughs> I work with people with disabilities. And, and then I went back and did my master's. Um, so that's how I started. Now, it's interesting. Suicide isn't one of your specialties. However, as we talked with students, yeah. they kept pointing us to mm-hmm. you that, that we would ask students who are graduating, um, who would you recommend? What, you know, what professor would mm-hmm. you recommend that we talk to? And, and overwhelmingly, people kept pointing us back to you. So we're thankful that you would be with us and be on the show okay. and looking forward to, to discussing this with you. I think that this is a topic that a lot of people are thinking through, are, are interested in, and I think for a variety of different ways. I think one reason is, is because we see these sorts of stories on the news and we hear about what's going on. But I think more than that, I think each one of us have somebody in our life who struggles with depression, who's struggled with suicidal thoughts. And I think that this story in particular of when a pastor takes their their own life, or we think of Rick Warren, whose uh, son took his life uh, not that long ago. These sorts of stories remind us that, you know, even, even a pastor struggles with suicide. Oh, absolutely. And it has been a controversial subject within yes. the church mm-hmm. over the last years. And I think it's just coming, coming out now mm-hmm. where in society it used to be a stigma as well. And now there's more talk about it through different organizations and stuff. But through the church, I think if there's more awareness. Can you give us a definition of mental illness, mm. mental health, Yes. Just to, to start us off here. Yes, yes. I think it's beautiful to make the difference somehow between mental health and mental illness because mental health, we all have it and we need to focus on. And mental health is just almost like a little branch. We need to pay attention to our physical health, our emotional health, and our mental health because that's a very important component. And again, we need, we live in a bit of a fractured society where we need to make these differences. And we don't focus necessarily on wholeness, where actually health implies mental health. And we live in a society where we separate some of these things. So mental illness focuses specifically on certain disorders and certain struggles that are connected to the mind and to the brain. So we have mood disorders, for example, that um, depression and anxiety and all this would fit right in there, bipolar and all this other. Um, and then we have some other more um, serious in some ways that we would call like, uh, so for example, schizophrenia and, and um, psychosis and all this other stuff would be. But 
everything is like really pretty much on a on a spectrum if you want to put it that way even when we say somebody has depression or anxiety we actually say nothing because there are so many differences personal differences and causes and treatment and supports that people have around them how they come out of it that we only have a very vague idea what this means um, for a person so we really need to take every case and every individual thing at a time well i think that raises an interesting point because i I think at some point in anyone's life, right, they're going to deal with depression or have a moment of depression or feeling blue. When when we say in some regards that that's natural, I mean, you would almost think it would be weird if somebody never had a down moment, you know? Yes. I think we are using some of these terms very interchangeably or, um, again, on a spectrum because depression and sadness, sometimes we use those things, I'm really down or I'm in a very low mood or something like that. So, But it's a bit of a different thing between, for example, grieving and I'm very sad or I have clinical depression. So usually for clinical depression, you have to have certain symptoms for a certain period of time to really qualify for a certain diagnosis. That being said, anxiety, for example, it's quite normal and helpful to a certain level. Past that level, it becomes pathological and it doesn't help us anymore. And a depression I would say low moods and sadness and feeling blue. Those things are very common things of life. I think people who don't experience those feelings, they have other problems, big problems. So let me ask this then. In light of that and taking more of a balanced perspective, is it normal for somebody to have a suicidal thought? Oh, yes. So thinking about suicide also is quite normal. I don't know too many people who never thought of suicide in some ways. Suicide is a normal thought that we have when we get to a very stuck place. Our mind loves balance. And every time we feel that we need to do something and it's hard to achieve it or we feel really stuck or helpless, our brain tries to find some kind of balance. And thinking about suicide, it's almost like the ultimate sacrifice that somehow we would make to attain or to achieve this balance. So thinking about it, there's nothing wrong about that, but there's a long way from just contemplating or thinking, it would be easier if I would not be here, or life doesn't make sense anymore. There's a long road from this to making a plan and really doing something. On that note, then, I think maybe it would be helpful for us just to ask and to think through, because I I think there's a lot of us, like myself, for example, Mm -hmm. that I haven't dealt with depression. I haven't. I have, uh, like I think everyone does at some point, you know, thought, well, what if I wasn't here? Mm-hmm. You know, or, you know, and you, you have those sorts of, of thoughts. But but walk me through what is what's the danger zone look like? Like walk me through somebody who's having unhealthy thoughts, like help us to understand what that looks like and what they're thinking. Yes. Usually people who start to think about suicide and then depression and anxiety is part of it. There is an intense feeling of helplessness and hopelessness and a feeling that you cannot escape this. 
and it's building and it's building in many ways. And then I think that one of the difficult pieces here is that people start to isolate themselves when they get to this place and their thinking is distorted doesn't matter how much love they have around them and how much support they have from their loved ones, they get to this thinking that they would be better without me, that I'm bringing only pain and suffering to their lives, and they convince themselves that it would be easier and better for everybody else if they will not be here. Now, that's interesting because with Jared Wilson, that pastor, right before he took his life, there's video, I believe, of him playing with his kids or a picture of him, mm-hmm. you know, playing with his kids. And I mean, that's the part for some of us that were like, man, I, he loves his wife and his kids, you know, and, and he was just playing with them. Like, why would he take his life? So you're saying that, that they convince themselves yeah. that they're actually doing them a, a good thing. A favor. Yeah. Yeah. They're really convinced that um, they would be way better and happier if they would not be around, considering that what they bring to the relationships is pain and suffering because that's what in their mind, in their mind is pain and suffering. So I have a question of talking specifically at a physical level. Mm-hmm. So when people become depressed or, you know, yeah. develop a suicidal ideations, what is happening physically to them? Chemically maybe? Yeah. Yes. So there are certain chemicals in, in our brains yeah, that are, kind of going up and down in some way. So when, for example, anxiety goes up, cortisol is really high. And when depression is present, dopamine and serotonin, norepinephrine, those are kind of on the low side. And it's very interesting because many times this play on each other. So when cortisol is high, the other ones are low also. But not necessarily when the cortisol goes low, the other ones would go down. So those are some of the things that happen in the brain. But physically, I think one of the most common uh, symptoms is really um, lack of energy. Even if you want to do certain things, you cannot. Everything, it feels like it takes a long time. I had clients who had a hard time getting out of bed. Even waking up and blinking sounds difficult. Uh, putting shoes on, eat everything, it takes a lot of energy. Are, are you saying that's because of the cortisone levels? Not necessarily, no. Cortisol is with anxiety. Cortisol is high when people are extremely anxious. Well, it, it, oh, I guess what I'm asking there just as a clarification is it because I've often wondered that why somebody with severe depression, they can't even get out of bed. Yeah. Right. Are you saying that there's a well, the dopamine co- and serotonin correlation with chemical that are going on in the there brain is with a, that? There is a correlation for sure. For most people, there is a correlation. I think it gets pretty complicated because it's not necessarily that, OK, all these chemicals are depleted. Hence, I feel this way. Sometimes the circumstances in one's life, okay, people go on and on and it gets harder and harder and they don't do anything very specific, then all this gets pretty much depleted. And then that's the result of... So for people that are in this state, Mm -hmm. what is the diagnosis and what, I mean, not diagnosis, but what do they need to do in order to get back to have those serotonin levels go up? Are you thinking about somebody in depression, Terry? 
Yeah. My wife has struggled with depression for a number of years, mm. and we did not know what was going on initially. It was a very, very uh, hard situation. So for the last 20 years, she's been on antidepressants. Mm. And a lot of Christians, I kind of bring this back to the -hmm. Christian area, there's been a problem with people looking at others that would take some kind of medication to help them in this situation. What are your feelings on that? Medication is an important component. Really, it is. I think when people struggle with, I don't know, have diabetes or something, they don't even question about uh, not taking the medication. So... If people would um, qualify for clinical depression, they need the support of medication. I think um, as psychotherapists, we are aware that we can do a small part of the work and also the medical doctors, they do another part of the work with this. Um, That being said, there are people who don't believe very much in medication and they have different kinds of depression because even with depression, sorry, but there's, for example seasonal affective disorder. People would have that. And I work with clients, for example, who don't want to take medication if they have seasonal depression disorder. And we prepare, we do all kind of planning um, how to make it true. And it's difficult and they make it true. But there are people with clinical depression that they could not function without proper medication. And that's a very important component. I don't think we should dismiss it, really. On the flip side, sorry, I just want to add to the other side of this. On the flip side, it can be a spiritual issue as well. Mm-hmm. We're broken human beings. Yes. What would you say with respect to that? For sure it can be. Um, and we should not minimize that. And I think that that's a bit of a risk sometimes with mental health. It's not something that we can really put our finger on it and we can spiritualize almost any of this. And many times we would say, for example, with anxiety or even with depression that you don't have enough faith or you should maybe focus more on um, serving others and then don't be so so self focused or center and then you will get better. Um, truth be told, I'm not sure if it really works quite like that. So we always need to put it in perspective that there may be a spiritual component, but not necessarily really. It's not a requirement that people who struggle with depression or anxiety, they have a spiritual component. That being said, there are lots of beautiful things that we can do from a spiritual perspective. I'm saying this because I work with clients that are both Christian and non-Christian, and they struggle, both struggle with the same severe depression, for example. And Christian clients, they overcome this. I need to be careful how I say this, but they have a lot more resources, how to overcome some of these struggles in a sense that the prayers of the others would help, the support of the others would help, even the knowledge of the unconditional love of a father. If we can do that, on the other hand, I think some Christians would struggle more than non-Christians because of the extremely high expectations. I should get better because I'm a Christian. That being said, I think we have lots of resources at hand. And instead of focusing on the judgmental part, on even the spiritualizing too much of this, then we need to focus on resources and support. 
there's a lot of misconceptions about uh, mental illness and depression, that kind of thing. Do you believe, and a lot of people might have not even heard this before, do you believe mental illness is genetic? It can be. Absolutely, it can be. And there is another piece here that complicates things. It's not necessarily that it's genetic, but we have a vulnerability, a genetical vulnerability to it. So, for example, my mom was very anxious. Part of it was passed on to me, and part of it, my mom acted in, a, in an anxious kind of way when I was a child. We have lots of other good things to us, lots of support. I, I had lots of love and encouragement. My father was extremely loving and accepting and all this. So lots of resilience is also that, that go in our lives. That being said, if there is something really stressful later on in my life, that can get activated. Whatever was encoded there can get activated in my life. And then I have to deal with it in some ways. So some of these things, even though they may have a genetical component, may not necessarily get activated. It seems like one of the things that we keep talking about here is that there's two components really to us, not to tease out some sort of dualism here, but... You know, you've, you've got a brain and, yeah. and it can be affected chemically. There's no mm-hmm. doubt about that. And you have a mind and it can be affected in other ways, such as other non-physical ways, such as uh, having gone through some sort of trauma, for example, yes. or dealing with any number of other things. And so there's, there's constantly this tension of multiple things at play. Uh, and, and one of the other things that we talked about as well is just the spiritual component as well, mm-hmm. that, that all these, these aspects of what it is to be a person uh, are at play. And so it's complicated. And we, I think we keep coming back to the idea that you know, it's not like you can just kind of pinpoint it on one specific thing. That, like, there's multiple things in action here. Yes. Mental illness is very complicated. It's not straightforward, really is not. And we still have quite a bit to learn about brain and Mm -hmm. how the brain functions and what's going on in the brain. There's a lot of research coming out. It was interesting. I was reading something by David Pallison. He said something I thought was interesting uh, with regards to this. He said, suicide operates in a world of death, despair, and aloneness. Jesus Christ creates a world of life, hope, and community. And and I, I think that's an interesting aspect of suicide particularly in a culture like ours, it is so lonely. Mm -hmm. I mean, in some ways, uh, I can't help but wonder if if suicide and people's interest in it right now is so high, just given the depths of loneliness that are rampant in in our world today. It's one of those reminders to me that as humans, we need and thrive in community. For sure. And I guess that's one of the dangers with some of some mental illness is that it has a way of extracting you from community. Oh, absolutely. We are the result of our own culture in so many ways. So living here in an individualistic culture, we cannot quite avoid some of the pitfalls of the individualistic culture and loneliness and feeling that we are solely responsible both for failures and for Uh, successes, it isolates us big time. And for sure, um, 
And because I, I think about like depression, right? Yeah. If you've got severe depression that you can't even get out of bed, yeah. I mean, you're going to be alone yes. in bed all day long. Yeah. And, it, and it, I'm guessing that, that makes it that would, worse. Yeah, that it would yes. make it worse. Yes. Yes. But think about our culture here that, for example, I come from a communal culture and now I'm in an individualistic culture. So I have a bit of a perspective from both, which is lovely in some ways. And, and there are benefits in both and drawbacks in both cultures. So in the individualistic culture, for example, if you want to visit somebody, you know that your friend struggles with depression. Um, we have this idea that I need to respect their boundaries. I need to respect who they are. So if I want to visit, I know they are in bed. I need to make a call or I need to make an appointment somehow to see when I can visit. In my culture, you know that somebody struggles, you show up. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. You don't ask. You questions. impose yourself. Yes. <laughs> okay. You know that that somebody's sick, and so you don't ask if you can visit. You just go. So I think we have many things that are embedded somehow in our culture that perpetuate some of this loneliness. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is one little piece, for example, that I learn when I'm teaching my students on, for example, compassion. One of the things that, that we struggle with big time is this idea of common humanity versus isolation. The more we, we think that it's just us who struggles um, and it's just us who don't know how to manage these things, everybody else knows how to do things, the more we isolate ourselves. The more we get to this place of learning that I'm just another human being who struggles. I'm a lovable, fallible child of God. When I accept that, I accept my own strength and my own weaknesses, then I can have the courage also to ask for help, mm-hmm. which is a big deal. I think that this is an important point in this conversation. You know, there's two different perspectives I think that that would be helpful to unpack. The first is if we were to stay focused on those who are experiencing suicidal thoughts. So imagine somebody's listening to the show and, and they're, they're struggling with suicidal thoughts. What would you say to them? What would you say uh, is something that they need to do, uh, especially yes. as we talk about help? Yes. Uh, how can they seek help? Yes. I think it's reaching out to others, really. It's allowing others to care for you during this time. So it takes a bit of courage to ask for help. So many of us, and I'm thinking of pastors and leaders, for example, we are very good at helping others. We take a lot of pride in that. We are not good at asking for help. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting you say that. Uh, the lead pastor of Northview, where Paul Jakes Canada operates out of, uh, his name's Jeff Bucknam, and he just he came out two weeks ago. And said, hey, listen, it's come to my attention. I've been dealing with depression for some time. And this summer, I went to see a doctor and was put on medication. And it was interesting, you know, how that really encourages other people to go, oh, it's okay. You know, that I I struggle with depression and I'm on medication. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we we need those people Mm -hmm. that often, you know, he fought it for years because he didn't want to go yes. deal with what he was dealing mm-hmm. with, you know, because you can get in the mindset of, I just want to help other people. Yeah. But that's one of the best ways sometimes you can yeah. help other people. Yeah, absolutely. So we live in a society where there are like 
extreme pressures on us, extremely high expectations that others put on us. And however much we do is not enough. And now with all the technology, we we only realize how much we don't know or how much more we still need to achieve. So that impacts depression and anxiety. People can be very successful and still feel like mm, nothing. Okay, so I need to... So, Reaching out to others, allowing others to care for you during this time is extremely important. So what advice then would you give to a listener who, who's you know, listening to the show and they have a friend who struggles with suicide? And, and I, I mean, I just had this the other day where somebody at church told me that they were having suicidal thoughts. I kind of have a, a resource of people that mm. I can turn to, but what would you say to somebody, whether they, it's a friend who's told them mm. that they're having suicidal thoughts, or it's, perhaps it's a child or a mm. parent, what advice would you give them? Yes. When somebody's saying that they have suicidal thoughts, I think that's an opening for a very good discussion about what else is going in one's life. What do they struggle with? Um, what else do they need? What's going on? Where's the helplessness and the deep sense of despair? What's that about? Because I think if people are only at the place of, I don't know where to go and I feel stuck and um, disclosing that they have suicidal thoughts, that's a way of reaching out, actually. So that, that's really good. That being said, I want to say a few words about the person who is at the receiving end of it, the friend, right? It's extremely important for friends not to take it, not to make too big deal about it, not to freak out, okay? Mm -hmm. Because if we freak out, then the other person would say, what's the point? I will never bring it up again because I don't want to freak out my friend. So it's almost, I'm not responsible for anybody's life because that's another piece with friends, for example. They feel like if somebody says that, I want to die by suicide or I'm afraid that I will do it. We feel responsible to keep that person alive or to do whatever it takes to keep them alive. We don't have that power. We cannot do that ever. So I think taking one step back to notice what happens for us as we hear this and almost notice this is hard for me to hear that my friend or my loved one suffers. But then I can stay present with whatever goes on for them and ask, what do you need? One of the things I've learned over the years with my wife, mm. when we first learned about it, it was difficult and I had no idea <laughs> what I was doing kind of thing. But going back to your comment there, just being present with them yeah. in the moment, you don't even have to say anything, right? I mean, there's times where she would say, I need alone to be alone. And, you know, I'd be, no, 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 let's talk. Let's, you know, go do that. But over the years, it's just been, okay, you need alone time? That's fine, mm -hmm. you know, at this particular time. So there's different ways that you can interact with your loved one or yes. somebody that knows uh, or is going through that. I think we just have to be very kind and responsive, like, yes. it, you know, in a very gentle way. We want to fix things all the time. Is, I is, know. Right? We exactly. want to fix things. Yeah. Yes. That's why I'm saying that I need to stay with whatever goes on for me, because if I am trying to get rid of the distress that actually is causing me by hearing that the other one is struggling, 
I am not focusing on what this person needs. I'm focusing on getting rid of the distress within me. Right. And that's not good and helpful yeah, yeah. because I will do whatever I think I need, you know? Yeah. I need and to that was talk. very uncomfortable for me when that first started, right? Yes. Like, what can we do? Like, yes. you know, to be there present. Yes. That's the best gift we can give others is the gift of presence because that goes against the loneliness piece. I have, I had a client um, who was actively suicidal for a long time. He tried to die by suicide a few times and he had all the symptoms and all this. And I asked him about next time when he would be ready to do it. And he said, when I'll be ready to do that, I will cancel a few appointments with you. And I was the only person that he saw. He was isolated, living by himself, extreme social anxiety and all that. So he would meet with a mental health worker once a week and with his counselor once a week. And he said when he would be ready to let go, he would have to cut some of these ties. So I'm thinking even once a week meeting bonds somebody's strong enough that it will keep them here hmm. thinking about the next time we would meet so is that hard for you as a counselor when you're dealing with people that you know may take their yeah. life and you're and you're wanting to help yes. but there's only so much you can do Sh- sure it is and I learned my own lessons in so many ways. With some of these clients, uh, when they would be late, I would almost freak out, uh, you know, <laughs> thinking maybe they're never coming, they're dead. But then I learned um, with one of my clients, as I sat with him, that I don't have this power to save him. And it's not even my responsibility. And when I learned to let go of that, I was able to truly be present mm-hmm. with him. And I felt that that made the difference. That's so interesting you say that. I think so often we think that we do have that power. We mm. we think highly of our, a lot yes. more highly of ourselves than we ought. It's a much more humbling position to take, isn't it? Yes. When you realize that you can't save them, but you can love them. Absolutely. And that brings me to this point that many times when we talk with them, we feel like we need to say things. You should do this. Maybe we should do that. And let's pray and reading scriptures. And we wreck our brains to find ways to keep them alive or to get them better when actually sitting with them and saying, this is very hard. This is very painful. I'm with you through this. I hear what you're saying, Estera, that, you know, we're limited in what we can do and we want to be there for people that are having Mm. these thoughts and these struggles and being present. However, I can't help but wonder, is there a moment where somebody does something or says something that heightens it to a level where you should take action? And what would that action look like? Well, yes. So when our friends or loved ones um, say that they're done and and they're thinking about dying by suicide, I think we have a little bit of a list in our mind. So the next step would be how serious the thought is. Do you have a plan? That's pretty much the next question. Here's one little thing. We are afraid that if we would ask people more specific questions, that they would actually now start to think more about it and it will make it worse. It's not true. People already thought about this. They usually feel relieved that somebody is actually not afraid to deal with some of these questions and answers. So asking them about 
if they have a plan, it's an important piece um, into this. If they do have a plan, then we ask for the specifics of it. And then we need to have like a safety plan put in place with them. And sometimes we just need to call 911 for them. Is there a point where you would be like, as a friend, you would take an active role and say, you know, there's the 911 call yeah. for sure. I mean, maybe somebody's told you that they've just, yeah. you know, took, you know, just ate a bottle of pills or whatever yeah. that might be or, or have ratcheted up to that, to that level. Or is there a point where you're just like, you know what, maybe, maybe we should work on getting you a counselor. If people are just contemplating suicide and they are distraught and, and they struggle in one way or another, the, the first way is to go to um, to find a counselor and um, some support. Even a spiritual director would make a good difference for people who don't want to go see a counselor. Um, but then when they start to have a plan and they cannot listen very well and they feel almost like they have like a tunnel vision almost, they feel so focused on this, then I think it is time for them to, to go to uh, emergency. And I had uh, clients of mine that said, I'm really sorry, you really need to go to hospital right now. So you've, you've sent clients to oh, a hospital? Yeah. Right. Sometimes you cannot let them leave the office um, because they say, I'm going off here and I will do it tonight. Okay, so that's that's what I was looking for. Yeah. Like, what, is, what does that look like when you're like, okay, this is a 911 call. So if they're saying to you, tonight, yes. I'm going home and yes. I'm going to take my life. And you also get a sense of people's responses to your questions. If they're erratic, they're not even present with you. They're almost gone in some ways. Uh, right? In a sense that that's their own only goal that I see. And they're so focused that... Anything is put on a side and they cannot see or do anything. The other piece is that sometimes people, when they decided to really die by suicide and they will do it, they get peace. Remember, I was talking about the balance. When they decided that they will do it, they finally get peace. So when people get a little bit better after they were having intense thoughts and suicidal ideation, if they get better suddenly, that's not a good sign. So, for example, with like that pastor, yes. when you see a video right before he commits suicide where he's having a great time with his kids, yeah. that actually could be a tail sign of yes. this that he good. already this is almost like his goodbye in some ways or that he made peace that this is all good. N now, explain this one to me, because uh, this is an interesting component to suicide. In the news just recently in Abbotsford, there was a man who climbed a tree to commit suicide and jumped off of it. But he didn't die. You know, he woke up with many bones broken and whatnot and had to crawl his way to help. That changed his life. Now all of a sudden he doesn't want to commit suicide anymore. Like, help me understand that. Yes. Actually, there are lots of people. There are lots of examples of people jumping off bridges, for example. Um, I, I read somewhere an article. I, I read that too. And then have a second thought and yeah. as soon as they jump. Yeah. I shouldn't have done this. Yes. Because this desire to leave is innate. It's a drive. We are made in so many ways to survive. Everything we do is to survive. So you see that when we try to die by suicide, our cognitions and our way of thinking is not clear and is not right in so many ways. So it's distorted and we struggle in so many ways. So for example, people want to die by suicide. Even if they don't have 
So, for example, with a gun is the easiest way to diet and uh, to die and then taking pills also. But many times I ask my clients, how do you plan to do it? And if they say, I have a knife, I know how hard it is to actually take a knife and do something and hurt yourself because your whole body kicks in. Okay, it's very interesting because your prefrontal cortex that is in charge of thinking and logic shuts down when you're in really immediate danger and your body kicks in. I saw a little video with a lady who tried to die by suicide and got in front of the train and she was kneeling in front of the train and waiting for the train to come and um, just literally less than a second when the train came, her body went down on the tracks. She got up after that, shook off and left. So the body really knows some of these signs and, and kicks in. And probably there is a restart in some ways because you ha- you get a, a bit of a new perspective on what happened to you. It's almost visceral. Now, some people, because it's so interesting, some people will have an attempted suicide and then they'll attempt again, but many will attempt and never attempt again. So it's, it's interesting how you can... Yeah, that one is hard somehow to pinpoint um, specifically why some people do this and why others do the other. But I could say this much, that more severe mental health and more severe depression and all that, the chances for people to try it again, then they will do it again. And and people with more serious mental health, for example, um, borderline personality disorders and other things that they would attempt again, for sure. My wife and I uh, work with an organization called SASHPAIR, uh, mm-hmm. Family Connections. And uh, there's been the leader of that um, organization, her which is borderline personality disorder, addresses that issue. Their daughter took her mm-hmm. life. You see that more and more over and over again where they, their attempts are more and more. So in, in this issue, you know, with the, the two pastors here, they completed what they wanted to do. This is a very difficult situation in the sense, first, they were Christian. Mm-hmm. You know, we've always had this thought that Christians just don't go to heaven after. I mean, this is a bigger uh, yeah. area of discussion, but, you know, th- what the families are dealing with right now, right? And how do we approach that as a Christian? Let me say just a little bit around that. Again, we need to look down back at history um, to understand even the way we approach death by suicide within the church, I would say. And this started maybe with St. Augustine when he looked at the sanctity of life, And he had the best of intentions with this idea of God gives us the gift of life and we don't take it away. And and it's a very good thing in so many ways. But the side effect of it, it was quite terrible because throughout history, then that was considered a mortal sin. And that was considered that automatically these people would go to hell and all these kind of interpretations that started with that. And Not only that, but suicide became illegal. And people who died by suicide, their properties were taken away, their families were kind of shamed, and they were not buried in the same cemeteries, and all this other stuff. I mean, these things still persist. You know that um, it was 
Well, in the at the beginning of the century, when suicide was taken away from not being illegal, that's a very difficult thing. It was passed on within our cultures and within our communities. It's very interesting if we want to look at it, because in the Bible, there are a few suicides that are mentioned in the Bible. Samson died by suicide. King Saul died by suicide. I mean, he jumped into his sword. And even Judah in the Bible, uh, in the New Testament, he died by suicide. And it's mentioned more like a fact. These are mentioned as facts. They are not mentioned with any kind of judgment attached to it. So in some ways, I'm not sure if we need to reconsider some of these things. Is this a complicated issue? It's a very complicated issue. Where do we go with it? But I think we have some troubles in some ways. We definitely have baggage, don't we, that Mm -hmm. we bring into the conversation and a lot of stigmas that are brought into the conversation uh, that without question are are not helpful, particularly because I think of the stigmas that get placed on suicide, whether those be theological stigmas or those be cultural stigmas, they feed into the problem Yes, because... If we stigmatize it in that way, then the help that you need, you won't reach out for because you're ashamed. Of course. And that's what makes it harder, I believe, for Christians who struggle with suicidal ideation because they feel that I don't have enough faith and I'm not loved by God or all these other things that they are afraid of bigger judgments. You know, one thing that maybe would be a place to end on here is... As I read uh, the New Testament, one of the things that I'm always captivated by with regards to Jesus is the greatest of sinners felt attracted to him. You know, that they, they weren't scared to approach him. They weren't scared, you know, to have dinner with him. They weren't afraid to be at his feet weeping and anointing him with perfume or whatever that might be, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's a curious thing. They didn't feel judged by him. Yes. You know, even if they did feel judged, they felt that they could go to him for help which I find so interesting. What a reminder to us of the kind of disposition that we really need to model in being the kind of person, being the kind of parent, the kind of friend that does create an an atmosphere that you can talk through difficult and challenging things. And for me, in some ways, what sticks with me is Jesus' last prayer before he went back to heaven. I was like, Father, help them love each other because I leave them back here on this earth. So to me, it's that sense of like, we need to be there for each other. We need to show the love that Jesus showed us to each other as we go through this, all this pain and all the struggles of the life of our lives here on earth, because Jesus knew that he would leave us here. So I think community reaching out to each other and getting out of the isolation and seeing ourselves also as lovable, fallible children of God is what helps us both to reach out to others when we are in need and also to reach out to help in an effective way when others need support. Yeah, it's been really great to have you here. We appreciate you being here. Yeah. And I was actually going to say, if uh, if somebody's interested in counseling, can you just briefly tell us about the counseling program at Act Seminary that you are part of? If somebody is interested in training in, in yes. counseling, yes, we are training marriage and family therapists. And our program really focuses on 
training good Christian therapists. Um, we focus on integrating spirituality and uh, psychotherapy. Our program is at ACT Seminaries. You can reach out, find us on the website. If people need uh, counseling support, there are lots of lovely um, Christian also support here in the community, and probably you have that. CARES counseling here, we have interns from our program, so that's a very affordable price. It's $40 for an intern, and from January to May, I have practicum students as so $20 of less or less um, for our clients to come and join us there. We hope this discussion uh, stimulates uh, further discussion for uh, our listeners, uh, wherever they are. Uh, thank you for joining us, listeners. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada, and we'll come back next week with more things to think about. Mm-hmm.